If you are not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it was, um, it was written possibly within the first century. It was used, actually, uh, very likely for church membership and for uh, coming around in unity of the gospel, um, making sure that there's an understanding of what it is that we believe. And so it is a summary of the Christian faith. There is that word Catholic in there. A lot of times many people wonder, well, what does that mean? It does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church. It refers to the universal body of Christ. And so that's why it's little c, it's the Catholic Church. Um, But we have been working on that and reciting it for about, about two and a half years now. And it's been neat just as we've worked our way through it. And then we decided... Well, all our kids had it memorized, so we should just make sure we have it memorized also. So this is your first Sunday. There used to be words up there, um, and we'll probably go back to that. But it's a neat thing. We come together to remind ourselves every week what the gospel is and what it is that we actually believe. So that is a means in which we do that. Uh, We are in the book of Hebrews, so I'll go ahead and have you turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. We've been here for a while now, so if you've been here, you should know why this book was written. This book is written to a church that has experienced very difficult trials. They've been persecuted. They've been arrested. Their possessions have been taken from them. Their faith is fragile, and they're wrestling with do they continue in the faith, or do they abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism? To go back to Judaism would be safe. Safe for them, safe for their families, no longer will they be persecuted. So they're wrestling right now, and this is, um, and the author is worried that if they continue down this track, that, that some will commit the sin of apostasy. Apostasy is once believing in Jesus Christ, and then at another point, now rejecting God and his gospel. And so today we're coming to a warning passage. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The one we are looking at today is possibly the most severe warning in all of Scripture. Um, It is written, and the first thing, like I just want us to know, it's written to the church. So it's meant for us to apply this warning to ourselves. There's no one here that this does not apply to Heaven and hell are what's at stake in this text. And we must heed this warning. And a sad and sobering truth is that there very likely is someone in this room that will one day commit the sin of apostasy and experience the wrath of God. That's what we'll see as we walk through here. Now you might say we're starting off a little more intense than what we normally do, already getting into the wrath of God. Well, Well, yeah, it's because of the text that we're in. And and for you just to know a little, um, a preaching tip, the tone of the preacher should always match the tone of the text. Okay? Does that make sense? So in a text that deals with people who once professed Jesus and now will deny Jesus and face the wrath of God. Yes, the tone will be quite sober. And throughout this message, it is. Um, If you came for your ears to be tickled this morning, that will not happen. In fact, I pray that never happens at this pulpit. Um, But I want us to remember why we have warning passages. 
These warning passages are redemptive in their purpose and in their meaning. The author does not believe the church has actually committed apostasy. In fact, next week we'll see and uh, that he'll say, actually, I don't believe this is true of you yet. I don't think you've committed apostasy. And so the purpose of these warnings is to prevent the church from ever falling into a sin. Think of it like this. When my family and I, we, we drive down to California on I-5, and once we cross the California border, uh, soon after that, we get into Mount Shasta. And it's a beautiful drive. The speed limit's 70 miles an hour, but there's a part where the speed changes from 70 to either 45 or 50. There's giant lights over the highway that are blinking yellow, warning, and there's a giant S-curve um, forward. So the purpose of all these warnings is to say, if you don't slow down, if you don't change course, you will crash and die. So the purpose of the warning is to keep us all alive, that we would be aware that there is trouble ahead that's what this warning is for. It's for the purpose of saying, if you continue to go down this road, there is a danger. So he's warning us for the very reason that we would never commit the sin of apostasy. And so as we go through this text, there's, there's three ways, at least three, that, that I think we should respond from this text. Number one, repent. Repent. I'm praying that as we walk through this text that all of us would just be sensitive to the moving of the Spirit. And if there is any sin in any of our hearts that we've been harboring, that he would bring that to our attention and we'd confess that today. Number two, I pray that this text will increase our love for God and his gospel. And number three, that we will persevere in obedience. And so we'll talk about those as we walk our way through this text. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand. As we read through the text, we stand each week as we read God's word. We do so as a reminder that this word is inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of our correction, our training, and our equipping that we would be prepared to do all that our God and Father asks us to do. So we're going to read from verse 26 to verse 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me pray. Father, I pray. I pray right now as we open up this text and as we study it, may your spirit give great grace to us today. Lord, I pray that, that your work is accomplished through the preaching of your word. I pray that no one here would be calloused, that no one here would, would dismiss this message, but that, Lord, that we would hear this message, each person, 
And that it would be applied to our hearts that, Lord, we would grow in our love and our zeal for you. And if there is any sin in our hearts, that we've been harboring anything that we thought was acceptable sins, that, Lord, you would bring that to our attention and we would confess that. For, Lord, you are holy. You are perfect. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross that we could have everlasting life. You have lavished your grace upon us. May we see that. May we know that. May we rejoice in that truth. And may we live each and every day for your glory. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, There are four primary questions we're going to work through uh, this text. And those questions are in your worship guide. Sometimes that guide is a little more uh, filled in. Today it's not. Um, So uh, sorry about that. But four main questions we're going to walk our way through. Number one, who is an apostate? text is dealing with apostasy. Let's make sure we understand what is an apostate. So who is an apostate? An apostate is someone who was part of the visible church. The first thing we have to know is this text is is written to those who would be called insiders, to those inside the church, the visible community of faith. So it's written to a group like this. And if everyone here says, yes, I'm a believer, an apostate would be here and would say, prior to committing apostasy, yes, I'm a believer. Verse 26, we see the author says, we. He's talking to us, to the church. Verse 29, he refers to those who have been sanctified. If you were here with us last week, that same word was used and applied to believers. And in verse 30, we read, the Lord will judge his people. He's talking to the people. He's warning them. And then he says, the Lord will judge his people. So an apostate is an active member of the church. Very likely they've been baptized. Very likely they will come and partake of communion. An apostate might even be a leader in a church. In fact, um, over recent years, we have seen pastors, and we'll talk about deconstruction a little bit later, who have uh, said they have deconstructed their faith, and now they have walked away from God altogether. If you remember Demas in the New Testament, he, in, in Colossians and in Philemon, he is recognized by Paul as a disciple who is actively working for the proclamation of the gospel. In the Second Timothy chapter 4, he has walked away from the gospel for the love of the world. But before that, he would have said, yes, I'm an insider. I'm with everybody else in the visible church. So number one, An apostate is someone who's part of the visible church. Number two, an apostate knows the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 26. It says that they go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge is epignosis, and it refers to a full and complete knowledge. The apostate does not abandon the faith because of a lack of knowledge. They can probably explain the gospel. They can explain many doctrines. Again, these people can be pastors. They can be elders. They can be deacons. They can hold any position within the church. Number three, an apostate 
willfully sins. Again, look at verse 26. It says, they, they deliberately sin. This does not refer to the occasional lie or being tempted by lust or wrestling with anger that normal Christians experience. As a Christian, we sin, right? Like we're not perfect. One day we will be perfected. But as Christians, we sin. But the apostate willfully sins. They take pleasure in their sin. They willfully disobey God's word. And they have no repentance over it. Number four, an apostate rejects the triune God. This is the heart of verse 29. There's three truths that the apostate will reject. Number one, he tramples underfoot the Son of God. This is a clear rejection of the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice how it refers to Jesus as the Son of God. That's who he's trampling. As far as they're concerned, Jesus might be a historical figure. He's a good moral figure, but he is not God. Next, they profane the blood of the covenant. To profane the blood of the covenant is to reject the Father, the one who graciously supplied his Son to come to earth, that he would die in our place on the cross so we could have forgiveness of sins. So to reject the blood of the covenant is to reject the grace of God and say, I would rather trust in the blood of bulls and goats than the grace that the Father has provided through his son Jesus. That's the danger that this church is in. They're looking at turning from Christianity and going back to Judaism, rejecting that, and anyone who would reject Christianity and say, no longer am I a part of the church, no longer do I believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel, they are trusting in something other than the grace of God in Jesus for their hope. Number three, they reject the Spirit. It says they outrage the Spirit of grace. And many of you might be familiar with those texts. I think it's in Matthew and in Luke and Mark where Jesus warns about those who would commit a sin against the Holy Spirit where he says those who sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And there's always this wondering, well, what is that sin? This is what he's talking about. You see, an apostate truly understands who Jesus is. They understand he's the son of God. They under, or at least they understand the biblical claim. They understand he's the son of God. They understand he's come in the flesh to die on the cross. They understand the gospel, the purpose behind it, and they say, I have no desire to do that. So they reject the spirit of grace who's given to awaken our hearts that we would believe in Jesus. And so the whole point of verse 29 is that the apostate intentionally rejects the triune God and his gospel. That's what's happening here. And when this happens, an apostate goes from an insider to an outsider. They walk away from the church to never want to come back in to these doors again and be with God's people. You probably know someone who's done this. I had a friend who served in ministry with me, was active in ministry. He now hates the church, has rejected the church, and lives willfully and purposely in disobedience to the gospel. If you're in the church long enough, you will know people who will purposely 
walk away from the gospel. This is exactly what 1 John says in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. Apostates leave the church. They, do have, they have no desire to be a part of God's people. They're sick of the church. They're sick of what it stands for. They're sick of the gospel. They don't think there's true justice. They think that this God is unfair and unjust, and they have nothing to do with him. So a question that we often wrestle with when we come into texts like this is, is the author saying that then we can lose our salvation? Is he saying that this is what the whole church is in danger of. Is that what he's communicating? So I just want to take a moment and address that question. Can we lose our salvation? After all, the author has described the apostate as someone who has received knowledge of the truth. Back in chapter 6, he said they'd been enlightened by the knowledge of God. In verse 29, he says this person has been sanctified. That word was specifically used in chapter 10 earlier in verses 10 and 14 as a means of giving confidence to believers of the assurance that we have in our salvation. And now we're told that this person who's sanctified will have no will have no hope for them. They're walking away from the gospel. So can we lose our salvation? Can a true believer walk away forever from God? And so the way I want to answer that is I just want to point out nine consequences if we say yes. If we say yes, that yes, a true believer can walk away, what are nine consequences from chapter 10 that would then occur? Number one, God lied when he said he does not remember your sins. Chapter 10, verse 17. Apparently he does remember your sins. And he will bring them back up. God's not faithful. Chapter 10, verse 23. To save those who believe in him. We're told in chapter 10 that we, God is faithful. And his faithfulness is the foundation of our assurance. And yet now we realize that He's not as faithful as we thought. God did not truly sanctify us and perfect us as the author said he did in verses 10 and verse 14. And remember, he spoke of those in the past tense in order to give us the absolute certainty of our salvation. It's a future hope that we will be fully sanctified. And yet he speaks in past tense in verses 10 and 14 so that we would know how absolutely certain our salvation is. Well, that's not true if we say yes. God does not save us by grace. He might have started the process, but we are the ones who finish it if getting to the end of the race is dependent upon our work and our effort alone. That was number four. Number five, Jesus did not fully satisfy God's wrath against us. Chapter 10, verse 12, he sits down after he made the sacrifice. At the cross, remember that? No old priest, no Old Testament priest ever sits down. Job's never done. Jesus goes to the cross. He then rises again. He sits at the right hand of God. And he sits. Job is done. It is finished. Well, Jesus' sacrifice would have been only good for our past sins then, not our future 
sins if we say yes. Number six, God must have erased the law that he wrote on our hearts and our minds in chapter 10, verse 16. We are told that he has written his heart, his law, heart, and mind, which means we've been given a new heart, which in, in other terminology, we've been adopted into his family. We've been given citizenship into his kingdom, which now he's, he's kicked us out of his family. He's rejected us from his kingdom, and he's erased his law from our hearts. Number seven, we do not have assurance that our hearts are sprinkled clean. In chapter seven, or in chapter 10, verse 22, draw near to God with your hearts with assurance that your hearts have been sprinkled. Not if you can lose your salvation. You cannot draw near to God with assurance. Number eight, the grace Jesus gives us as our high priest is not sufficient to help us stand firm in our faith and overcome temptation. In chapter 10, verse 21, when we looked early last week, we, two weeks ago, last week, in the recent past... You know, we've been in Hebrews for a long time. It's all running together. I think it was last week. We, we said two things. In verses 19 through 21, emphasizes what Jesus has done. He goes to the cross. He's died for us and risen again. Number two, what Jesus has become for us. He's become our high priest. We see that in verse 21. And the purpose of him becoming our high priest, we see in chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 16, that when we wrestle with sin, when we're tempted, he gives grace. That's the hope that we have, is that in our Christian life, when we do face sin and it feels insurmountable, how are we going to overcome this? We don't turn inward. We turn towards Jesus, who's our high priest, and says, I give grace so that you'd be helped when you are tempted. So no matter what we go through, we would stand firm. But if we can lose, then that's not sufficient. And last one, number nine, Jesus' blood is not any better than the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament. Chapter 10, verse 1, he said, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the good things to come referring to Jesus and all the salvation he brings, but if he cannot bring a greater salvation than blood of goats and bulls, then there is no sense to trust in him. So to answer the question, can a true believer lose their self? Well, let me, let me say it like this real quick. So often we read God's word, but we're not thinking. We see a problem. We see an obstacle. We go, well, hold on. It looks like the Christian can lose their salvation. And so we go, well, I guess that's just what must happen. But we don't then go, what would happen if I say yes to this? What an enormous amount of other problems occur if all of a sudden I say yes to that question. We're facing one problem, but if we say yes, now we face minimum of nine problems, and that's just in chapter 10 alone. We could probably walk through 90 other problems in the book of Hebrews alone that we would face if we say yes. So when we're in God's word and we come to a problem, or at least a problem that it looks like to us, and we're going, how do I wrestle with this? It's so important for us to be surrounded by a body of believers to truly wrestle with God's word so that we would see what does the scope of Scripture say. If one passage is hard, let's step back and see what 
other truths do we have in God's word that might be more clear in different passages that would shed light here? So that's what we always want to do. So to answer the question, can a true believer lose their salvation? No, because that would literally undo the argument the author has made for at least the last three and a half chapters. And of course, the entire book as well. So then how do we make sense in verse 29 that an apostate is referred to as someone that's sanctified? Because we got to make sense of that. He's using same terminology as he did for a believer. That's what makes this hard. This is where we have to remember who an apostate is and who he's writing to. An apostate looks like a believer until they leave the church. They're a part of the entire visible church. They could hold any position within the church. Do you remember when Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, one of you will betray me? What did they do? They didn't go, it's Judas. We've been telling you the whole time, Jesus. No, they had no, they're like, who is it? Like, they had no clue. Because you don't know someone's apostate till they're apostate. Because they're going to say, yes, I'm a believer. Demas was a believer. He said, well, he would have vocally professed faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. And then all of a sudden, we see the end of the story. He wasn't a believer. And so he's speaking to the church because everyone listening to him is going to say, I'm a believer. This is why this message is so incredibly applicable for us. Some of you are tempted to go, well, I don't, I don't, I don't struggle with apostasy. I'll never do that. Demas would have said that also. Every apostate at one point in their life would have said, well, that's not going to be me. And all you're doing is being like Peter when he said, oh, don't worry, Jesus, I won't deny you. And then like 30 minutes later, he denies them three times. Remember, what we're going to see later is that the evidence one is truly a believer is that they persevere in their faith. The author describes the apostate like a believer because he's speaking to the church so they will heed his warning. Because evidence of real salvation is perseverance. The one who does not persevere to the end will prove that he was never truly a believer. Does that make sense? We'll come back to that again later. Remember, we said this in chapter 3. Salvation is not just about starting a race, but it's also finishing it. Not in our strength, but all in God's grace. We're so interested in getting someone to say the prayer, to seal the deal, right? That's what we want. We just get them to say the prayer and we're good. That's not the goal entirely. That's like starting the race, but Jesus saves us not only to start, but to run and finish the race as well. Salvation is spoken of in several ways throughout the Bible. It's spoken of as in that moment when you believe in Jesus Christ. It's also spoken of as in the life of the believer. And also it's spoken of as salvation, as those who will be there at the return when Jesus, or at the end when Jesus returns, who have proven faithful. We like to limit it just to what we call justification, a moment in time. But the way the Bible speaks about salvation, it could be that moment or any part of the entire Christian life. 
So, I don't even know what question. I think we've done two questions. Number two, three, maybe? Is it number three? Two? Oh, we've only got to the second one? That's cool. No problem. We've got plenty of time. What is the result of apostasy? I want us to see that. What's the result? What happens to the one who truly rejects God? Three things we're going to see. Number one, they're an enemy of God. Look at verse 27. They're called an adversary. The word means enemy. The insider has become an outsider, which means he is an enemy of God. Number two, there's no hope for them. Verse 26, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, which means they've rejected Jesus. They have no hope. There will never be anything else that will offer them forgiveness. The apostate, there's a hardening in the heart that takes place that they will never be able to return in the faith. And they will never want to return either. We read Hebrews 12, 17. For you know afterward that when he, referring to Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. Now, real quick, we never know who apostatizes. Even the friend that I have that's abandoned the faith and rejected, who looks like an apostate, we don't know if he's truly an apostate. That's only what God knows. Our mission is to share the gospel. Our mission is to love people. Never do we then go, well, we label that guy so there's no more hope for them. We have no clue how God will work and what his grace will do. But we're to take this for ourselves that we would not walk away from the faith. So don't ever think and you go, well, that guy walked away. Oh, there's no chance for him anymore. Or if you're here today and you've gone, well, I've kind of walked away from the God. Am I an apostate? For one, let me just say this. If you ever wrestle with that question, you're probably not. And if you're here, you're probably not. And if you're desiring to live for Jesus Christ and confess your sins, you're definitely not. At least not now. So we don't label people apostates. Our job is to share the hope of the gospel. Um, number three, they will face a greater judgment. And this we need to see. Verse 28 says that whoever rejected the old covenant would be killed. Verse 29 says, how much worse? How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God? Verse 20, 31 says, this person will fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 27 says, the apostate will be consumed by the fury of fire Hell is a result of apostasy. That's the final destination. God offers grace in Jesus, infinite grace. He, he lavishes his grace upon us. And the reason why the judgment is so great for the apostate is because they fully understood the gospel. And then they rejected him. Hebrews 12, 29 says that God is an all-consuming fire. In Revelation chapter 20, hell is described as a lake of fire, which as I've wrestled with this late, lately, I don't know that hell so much is a literal lake of fire, but is the picture of God's furious wrath that all who do not believe in him will one day experience, but especially the apostate. For hell is a place that pain never ceases. It's a crushing. 
that's never lessened. It's a fire that will never be quenched. And according to Scripture, the judgment that one experiences in hell will be based upon the knowledge they had of God. And so while hell will be horrific for all, for the apostate, the one who knew the gospel and then rejected the gospel, that judgment will be far greater. It will be the unending torment of your soul. Second Peter says this, chapter 2, verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Judgment, hell, be hard for everyone. It'll be unending torment. For the apostate, it will be far worse. And for everyone here, that's where we would be if we apostatize. For you know the truth of the gospel. That's why he's writing this to them. He's not trying to scare the hell out of them. I mean, it's a little bit what happens, right? That's not the point. But if the grace of God is so great, and we know that greatness, that's why the punishment is even greater. Does that make sense? We know the greatness of this grace. We know how great, we know that we are unworthy. We know that we are sinners. We know that we do not deserve the grace of God. And yet, that is exactly what the gospel is. So that he would save us and forgive us and bring us into his family forever. And then to reject that, it would be better to have never known the gospel. So we can just breathe for a moment. Just kind of like take a breath. We'll, we'll make it to the next question. Um, this church is attempted, is tempted to abandon the faith, to reject the grace of Jesus. They want to avoid temporary pain of following Christ in this world. And so the author just reminds them if you trade the temporary pain for comfort now, you will experience a greater pain for all of eternity. And there's a, I kind of want to just do like a whole like side note and, and go through. The Bible talks a lot about apostasy. Do you know that? You might not be aware of how much it actually talks about. Um, we're told in Scripture that before the coming of Christ, there will be a great apostasy. That's what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says. In your ESV, it will say rebellion. That word rebellion is the word apostasy. He's talking about before Jesus returns, there will be a great rebellion, a great leaving of the church. Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, verses 10 through 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for what the, world, what the future will look like. And he says... Before the end will come, let me tell you something. And he says this, there will be, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Before the return of Christ, there will be a great leaving, a great exodus within the church. There will be insiders who will then become outsiders. In fact, it will be so great, there will be many people who will wonder if the church will even survive. It will look like the enemy has actually 
conquered the church. In fact, we see waves of apostasy. If you look back through church history, you'll see there's, there's waves of apostasy that takes place. All, all in anticipation of a much greater day. In fact, COVID, I think, has, even here in America, has, has done some sifting within the church. There's many people who have, I'm not saying that they're apostates, maybe some have, but many people have left the church during COVID for multitude of reasons, and, and some, it does not appear, have any, have any point that they're coming back. So this is why we need to take this seriously. It's a threat that's going to be ever-increasing. And if the return of Christ comes in our lifetime, we need to realize there will be such a temptation, such a persecution of the church that many will want to leave the church. It's what's happening 2,000 years ago. It's what's happened throughout church history. And all of those are predecessors of a much greater temptation that will take place. If we live during that time, we'll be going through that. So this is meant to strengthen us, to equip us, to remind us of the hope that we have in the gospel that we would never fall into that sin. So it'd probably be helpful to ask then, how does one become an apostate? And I want you to really think about this. To not only think through your life and where you're at and the things that you go through, but to think about other believers around you as well. How does, how, does, how, does an apost- how does one become an apostate? Number one, trials. That's what's happening here in Hebrews. Pain, suffering are powerful tools that Satan will use to cast doubt on God's presence and love for the church. It could be persecution. Uh, it could be, uh, could be like the, the being arrested for your faith, which we see here. It could be, could be the loss of a child. Could be the loss of a loved one, could be cancer, could be injustices that you see and perceive throughout this world. But many people, because of suffering, will walk away from the church. They will say, I, I, don't, I don't want to believe in a God. If he's in charge of everything, I, I can't believe in him then. Number two, bad teaching. Not limiting it to pastors, but certainly pastors. Many pastors preach that God wants you to have your best life now. They don't teach on pain and trials. They don't teach on apostasy, and they certainly don't teach you the need to persevere in your faith. Bad teaching will set us up for apostasy. And the hard thing is you often don't know you're under bad teaching until you're under good teaching, and then you realize what bad teaching is. Um, Temptations. We think there are acceptable sins. At least we act like that. Everyone lies. It's fine. Everyone gets angry. It's fine. Everyone struggles with, with words and how we speak, so that's fine. I go to the bikini barista stands because they have good coffee. At least that's what we say, right? I go for evangelism. It's okay to stop going to church. I'm working hard for a promotion. It's not safe. I have a hobby. These are, these are acceptable sins in the church. And let me just tell you something. An acceptable sin, it's like crawling into a cage with a lion. You might live for a while. It will kill you. It will destroy you. 
That's what happens when we, when we play with one of these. So this is, where, this is where I just pray. If there's any sin, if there's anything that we would consider acceptable in our life, that the Spirit would just press on it right now. So if you're thinking anything or anything's coming to your mind, oh, I do do that. Oh, that is what I do, or that's what I've done. And I just urge you to confess that today. Because those acceptable sins, at least of what we tell ourselves, will lead you slowly, further and further away from the gospel. 1 John chapter 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So remember, the apostate deliberately and willfully sins. But the true believer, we don't make a practice of sinning, which means we don't willfully live. Our, our lives aren't characterized by a consistent, willful desire to sin. We fight against it. And the reason is, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he's born of God. Isn't that good news? Like the reason you have victory over sin has nothing to do with you. It's all about God's grace and that he gave you new life and you now are born of him and a part of his family and it's about his presence in you which gives you victory over sin. Neglect. We forsake the gathering of the church. We forsake reading our Bibles. We forsake prayer. We think obedience is optional. In chapter 2, we talked about this. We titled a sermon on it, Spiritual Drift. We think we might not abandon Christianity right away, but like a boat without, without an anchor, we're drifting towards the shore where the rocks are, where we're going to be moving towards destruction. And so I just ask you, are you drifting? Are you drifting right now? Are there things that you're doing or not doing? You're drifting from the faith. Don't, don't answer too quickly and say, well, I'm fine. Are you drifting? Are you zealously pursuing your walk in God? Are you striving after him? Are you running after the gospel? Or are you on that cruise control? And cruise control really just means we're drifting away from the truth. And oftentimes it's very slow, it's very imperceptible, which is why we don't care about it much until all of a sudden we're in the rocks. Maybe you know people who are drifting. And let me just say this, if you know someone who's going through trials, if you know someone who's, who's working through or you know, experiencing what we call acceptable sins, if you know someone who's neglecting certain church disciplines like, like reading the Bible, gathering with the church, praying, those things move towards them, not away from them. That's what we're called to do, to move towards them because they're blinded at this moment. And so we move towards them because what we've seen in Hebrews and all throughout the New Testament, the way we get to the end is with the church, not by ourselves. Does that make sense? Like we're running together, which is why we love being together. Gathering as a church is so important. Table groups are so important. Being together as a church and eating and all those things, like we love that, but there's a greater purpose than food. Can you believe it? It's better. But we will have food, I'm told, on, on, on Saturday night for the, for the decorating party. Like, we need to. But the purpose of that is that it fosters conversations. It builds relationships so that I know you, you know me. We love each other. We care for each other. And also, when you see something in my life or I see something in your life, I don't go, well, good luck. 
but we move towards him. Why? Because Satan's like a prowling lion. He wants everyone to go towards apostasy. So we move towards people in love. We confront them. In love, we pray for them. In love, we meet with them. Last one, influence. There's a powerful movement in our culture right now called deconstruction. You probably have heard it. If you haven't heard it, now you have. Um, Deconstruction is when people start asking questions about their faith, and that's a good thing. And let me just say this. If you have any questions about your faith, I or any one of the elders want to meet with you. Like, and we want, we zealously want, we take joy in meeting with you and wrestling through with questions. Your questions are not silly. They are not mundane. They're, they're not immature. If you have questions, know that any of the elders, and I'm sure many other believers here, we want to talk with you. We are not scared of questions. The Bible is not afraid of questions. But what deconstruction does It says, I'm going to begin questioning everything that I believe, but I'm not going to use God's word. I'm going to use my experience. I'm going to use pain. I'm going to use my hurt. I'm going to use injustice. And those are going to be the lenses in which I look and I'm going to analyze the Bible so that then God becomes accountable to me. And if he doesn't measure up, then I'll either take out parts of my faith Or I'll abandon it altogether. But if you leave out parts of your faith, you will lose the gospel no matter what. Not all deconstruction ends in people leaving the church. It often does. But we need to be aware that there's entire YouTube channels dedicated to this now. So in our close, how do we avoid apostasy? Last question. How do we get to hope, right? Right? We have to spend our time in the other questions. This is a topic we don't listen to every day. We're not scrolling through our podcast feeds going, where's the apostasy one? Where's one talking about fury and fire and falling into the hands of God? But we need it. Because it's the warnings, not only with the other means, but the warnings are a means in which we run the race. The warnings are a means in which we stay safe. The reason you tell your kid to not run with scissors is not because they've already fallen down and stabbed themselves, hopefully. But you know the danger that occurs if they don't. The reason you tell them, look both ways before you cross the street, is the warning is the means in which they'll stay safe. This warning is the means, a means, in which we will not only run the race, but we'll finish the race. So how do we avoid apostasy? Well, um, we already said, real faith perseveres to the end. And so we're, we're going to get into the more of this next week, and then all of chapter 11 is about this. Uh, so we're just going to go through this a little bit quick. But remember, salvation is not just about a moment in time, but it's about a lifetime of trusting and believing in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, scroll down a little bit. Scroll. If you have, hopefully you have paper Bibles. You're not scrolling. Look, if you have your iPhone, that's fine too. You can scroll. Um, I like paper. Uh, But look at verse 38. This is what he says. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We don't shrink back. 
We persevere in the faith. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end, we persevere. Jesus, right after talking about apostasy, Matthew 24, 10 through 12, verse 13, he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice how he uses salvation there. It's not about justification. It's about the end of the Christian life. Remember, the Bible doesn't just talk about justification. It talks about all of it. So how do we persevere in our faith? How do we stand firm when the pressure of sin and the world is crushing upon us? How do we resist the influence of the world that says our faith is foolish? Number one, we remember the gospel. That's what he's been talking about the entire time in Hebrews. And two things particular, we looked at them last week. What has Christ done for you? He died on the cross in your place so he would absorb the wrath of God so we could be forgiven and have absolute confidence in our salvation. And the second part about that is what has he become for us? He became our high priest and he gives you grace every day. He gives you grace to love your wife gives you grace to love your husband, to love your children, gives you grace to stand firm at work, gives you grace to overcome your anger, gives you grace to overcome lying, gives you grace to overcome your lust, gives you grace to overcome all the temptations I want to draw and pull you away from the church. He gives grace, and that grace is sufficient. So number one, we come back to the gospel. What has Christ done for me, and who is he? So that we can stand firm, Number two, we remember the church. Hebrews 10, 26 said, do not forsake the gathering of the church. And if you remember, it said, actually it's verse 25, do not neglect to meet with one another as is the habit of some. You're going to be tempted not to meet with the church. COVID did that for many people. Said it's okay not to come. If you do not come to church, you're on the road to apostasy. Let me just be black and white. But we encourage one another all the more. Why? As we see the day drawing near. Multiple reasons. One, we're called to persevere to the end. Two, on that way to the end, what's going to happen? There's going to be a great rebellion. It's going to get harder. So God gives you the church, other believers, as a means of grace to encourage you, to lock arms with you, to help you, which is why we do so many things at this church within community so that when those times come, we have people around us. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you know someone who's not a part of the church, go after them. If you have that temptation to think church is more optional at times, let this be your correction right here. Remember past grace. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He says, do do you remember how God gave you grace in the past? The same grace he gave you in the past will give you today and tomorrow as well. So remember God's faithfulness, past grace. And then remember your reward, last one. Verses 10, chapter 10, verse 34 to 35. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do you know there's a great reward? 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says, When Jesus returns, he will bring great justice, and he will judge all who have not believed in him. And then you know what he says? And he'll give relief to the saints. He'll bring us in to the fullness of the kingdom of God, into his glory, where we will then be glorified with him, and we will never, ever, ever wrestle with sin again. We will forever be freed from the power of sin, the presence of sin. We will no longer wrestle with shame and guilt. All of those will be done at that time. We will see Jesus as he is because we will be made like him. We will sit at the right hand of the Father and with Jesus. We will receive the crown of life. And we will forever bask in the glory of God, full of joy, at maximum capacity at every day and every moment. Isn't that incredible? Like you can't even, like, like think of a color that doesn't exist. You can't. It's, we can't even think, what's that going to be like to be at maximum joy at all the time? We can't actually fathom that, I don't think. I pray that if you've needed to, and I know that we all do, that we've repented of any sins that we needed to today. If you haven't yet, do so. Do so before you take communion. I pray that you love God more in his gospel. The reason there's such great wrath is because there's such great grace. There's such great grace. And I pray you've been encouraged to persevere. Maybe you've been realized you've been drifting. Maybe you realize there's been some things happening in your life, but you've been called back, must persevere. Husbands, especially, just want to bring this to you. One of the ways you shepherd your family is by demonstrating perseverance, reading your Bibles, ensuring that your families are with the church, shepherding them, loving them, praying for them, and not just for them, but with them. And we can talk about the roles of wives and children also, but just husbands especially. I just want you to think through. You have such a responsibility here. It's a privilege, but there's a weight to it. We're called to shepherd our families. We're called to lead them into a life of perseverance. So I just want to encourage you. Men, let us take our role as shepherds seriously. And let us realize there's great temptations in this world. So let us guard our families. Let's pray for our families. Let's be active shepherds in how we care for them. We're going to pray. And we're going to take communion. And I just want to encourage you, just take some time either as you have the elements or even before you come up. And spend time just talking with God. Confess anything that you need. Praise him for the, for the salvation that he's given you. Ask him for strength to persevere in each day. And again, if you have questions, I would love, I know Chris would, Ozon would, Rich would, and I know there's a million other people here, not even a million people here, but we want to talk with you. I truly mean there's no question that's silly. There's no question that you have that we don't want to take time and answer with you. And if we don't know the answer, figure it out together and let's pray.